few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yeah, you did. Trying to keep it a secret, eh, Roger? Because he played a secret agent. Engineer, our producer, a man of many talents, none of which are on display here. <laughs> Magic Matt Allen. Yeah. David Lore. Hi there, David Lore. I bet you're on the phone. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> you sound about as enthusiastic as our listeners. <laughs> 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 Last time you were on the show, you were 12 years old. <laughs> Something like, it was a long time ago. Wow. What must have been 2,000-something. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I want to say we were talking about Casey Anthony or something. I, I can't remember. It's been so long. Yeah, well, Casey, too many people talked about Casey Anthony, and so we seldom did. We had a yeah. sign on the wall that said, anyone who mentions Casey Anthony has to pay Matt Allen $20. <laughs> well, checks in the mail. Yeah, checks in the mail. Too late now. Well, you did a lot of stuff with Casey. I don't mean in person, but uh, in your brilliant career, you certainly covered a lot of stuff with Casey Anthony. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was there for the uh, searches for a daughter. I was there for the trial, uh, the whole nine yards. Yeah, what uh, what was your takeaway from all that? Oh, well, you, you know, it's funny. I, I did a radio show before her trial, and they asked me if uh, if I thought they were going to get her on the murder charge, and, and I said, no. I, I said, I don't think they're going to get her. I don't think they have enough evidence. And, boy, you know, I, I caught a lot of hell for that from everybody. <laughs> and uh, But, it, you know, as it turns out, uh, she didn't, and I never expected her to. Well, that's the thing about... Uh about evidence. <laughs> You're supposed to have it. So what uh, What was lacking in the evidence that led you to that conclusion? Well, I mean, there just wasn't anything solid uh, pointing to her, you know, you know and, and I'm not defending her. I, just, I, don't, I don't think she wasn't involved in some manner. I'm just saying there, there wasn't enough evidence there for them to get the first-degree murder conviction they were looking at. I, I think they were aiming too high. And uh, I think they also should have explained to the jury that they could have got her on a lesser charge. What about her daddy? There's something wrong there. Yeah, yeah, there's something wrong there. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, and I would hate to speculate, but I would certainly say uh, there's quite a few issues in that family. Yeah, yeah, the issues, uh, unfortunately, are by subscription. They keep paying for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tragic story, no matter how you look at it. Uh, your brilliant career, which has now reached its apex as pinnacle as Motorola, as Ben would say. We'll get to that towards the end of the show, and people will be dumbfounded. But <laughs> before well, we get to that... I think they'll be more excited and elated that it's the end of the show. Yeah, they'll be excited it's the end of the show. It's the information that will upset them. <laughs> uh, we can keep making fun of ourselves, because other people do. Uh, not only did you do the uh, the Huffington Post and Discovery, and tell tell me about Court TV. Well, you know that that was kind of what all started. It uh, I I never set out to do crime journalism. Uh, you know, I always had a fascination with true crime, and I, I used to get the true detective novels. Uh, you know, when I was a kid and stuff. And in the '90s, when the internet was starting to take off, I thought it'd be kind of neat to do like a, a true crime website. So I had started uh, writing about different serial killers and stuff like that. And one of the cases I wrote about on my website was the BTK serial killer, because at that time, there just, there just wasn't a whole lot of information out there. And then uh, one day I got an email from Marilyn Bardsley, and she was the executive editor at Court TV's Crime Library. And she says, hey, you know, I, I like what you've assembled on BTK, would you write it for our website, but, you know, expand on it? Uh, I think she wanted it to be like 15, you know, pages long or something like uh -huh. that. And uh, so I agreed to do it, and, and she offered me, uh, you know, it's kind of funny now, it's like 250 bucks or, or something. Whoa, <laughs> well, to a true crime author, that's a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> so, so I did it, not, not expecting much of it. And, uh, you know, she liked it, and she's like, well, you want to do another one, you want to do another one, and, and then I did you know, many, many stories for, and then they, they launched the uh, crime library news section, and I started writing for the news for it. But so what's interesting about that is, so BTK was the, the first story I ever wrote that I, that I was paid any money to write. Wow. You know, and, and, and fast forward, you know, this was in the 90s, 
you know, the, the mid to late 90s. So you fast forward to, uh, I, I think it was, what, 2003 or, or four or something like that when Dennis Rader resurfaced. And uh, one of the things he had done was he had taken my story, this is before he was caught, he had printed it out and he had you know, changed a couple things and he had a, a 13th chapter that said, will there be more question mark? And he sent it along with a, a photocopy of one of the victims missing driver's licenses. So we knew it was BTK. And so that, that was just always really crazy to me. And you know, the first story I ever wrote professionally and then uh, I get critiqued by the killer I wrote about before he's caught. <laughs> Isn't that pleasant? <laughs> well, it sounds like you got a positive review from him because he's, uh, he's republishing it, so to speak, sending it out. Uh, yeah, he, well, he was his own press agent. Yeah. And, and, well, I, I didn't even know about it until I was contacted. Uh, I, I wanna, it's been many years now, but I, I want to say it was the FBI out of Kansas and they're like, hey, you know, has anyone tried to make contact with you? Have you received any strange calls or emails or anything? And I'm like, no, I, I didn't know what they were talking about at first and, until it came out. And, you know, that, it, it was a tad spooky at the time because, you know, we had no idea who the guy was. He wasn't caught yet. He didn't put his return address on the letter, did he? <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, yeah, that, that was just a crazy case. And, you know, once he was caught, I, I sent him one letter. Uh, I believe, I want to say it was after he was convicted. And I never, he never wrote back to me. I never heard back from him. Uh, I was just curious uh, to hear his thoughts on the story, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gee, I didn't know you were a big uh, true crime fan, Mr. True Crime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had on the show, maybe you heard it, maybe you heard about it, we had on uh, Here Come the Judge, Here Come the Judge. The guy who was BTK's uh, Flip attorney. Flip Wilson? We had no, Flip. no, no, not Flip or Wilson. Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> no, not Sammy Davis Jr. Here Come the Judge. <laughs> it was uh, BTK's lawyer, who now is a judge. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, what was it, Christmas Eve? Uh, Raider comes to his office. I got something I got to tell you. I need your advice. I got people buried in the buried in the foundation of my home. Can you come take a look? <laughs> so his whole job, he said, was just trying to keep uh, keep him from having a death penalty. But it was a very strange Christmas Eve meeting. <laughs> this clown said he's a serial killer. <laughs> well, he was. That must be strange. I find it fascinating that he would send out basically press releases comprised yeah, of your yeah. work. So he, I guess if he figured he was going to be that sick, he might as well be famous for it. Yeah, and, well, you know, and what's messed up about the whole thing is uh, if he hadn't, you know, re resurfaced, uh, he'd, he'd probably still be a free man to this day. You know, he just couldn't stand not being in the spotlight again. Yeah, kind of like the third farewell tour of Blind Faith or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's about it, too. And uh, Yeah, so I, I, I stayed with uh, Court TV until, uh, I, I'm sure you remember, they shut their doors in, uh, I want to say it was 2008. They decided and, uh, there was no more crime in America, no more justice either, so they just closed up. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And, uh, and it, it was funny, I... I was out of work for about a week and I got an email from uh, the Discovery Channel and they're like, hey, we're starting this new network called Investigation Discovery. Do you want to come over here? And so I agreed to come over and they asked me uh, if I knew anybody else and so I suggested uh, Gary King and uh, Corey Mitchell and uh, they came over there with me. And, you know, we, we spent, uh, I don't know, two, maybe close to three years or something there. How is it like working for them? Yes, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was all right, you know. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked for multiple outlets over the years, and you know, the Huff, Huffington Post was the last one I worked at. I was there for about ten years, and uh, you know, I, I did enjoy working there. I, I had nothing to do with the politics, even though I got hell about it all the time. <laughs> I just did the crime part of it. But, uh, you, you know, it just got to a point where uh, I, I think I was just starting to get burned out, really. And and I didn't like the way things were changing in journalism, you know, because... Everything I mean, the, the, the lack of factual information and ethics? 
<laughs> well, yeah, that, and you know, they 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 all want everything to be aggregated nowadays. Where where you know you're basically taking three different sources of people who've already reported on it, and you're putting it together in an article. And and to me, you know, that's not reporting. And uh, you know, I I buck back against that quite a bit. And you know, I'd be told to aggregate something, but I would report on it anyway. I'd make my own phone calls and stuff, and. So I, I think that upset some people there. They they didn't like that, but it, you know that to me just wasn't being a journalist. Yeah. You know why am I getting why am I getting paid to report something that's already been reported? To me, I should be out there finding something new to report on. Gee, that's a concept. Mm. <laughs> Sixteen minutes, anyone? Yes, uh, they teach that in journalism school. How to aggregate. Mm. Well, I can tell you guys that Burl is quite aggravating. Yes, I'm very. I'm better at aggravating than aggregating. But, but you know, I, I worked with some great people there, and they didn't even have a crime section when I started there. And uh, me and this other guy, uh, Buck Wolf, we started the crime section and the weird news section there. And uh, uh, along with a guy named Dave Moy, and you know those sections just took off. They did really well, and uh, it, it wasn't until after Verizon bought the Huffington Post that, that things just started to go downhill. You know, they were more interested in numbers and traffic than they were in uh, you know breaking news and stuff like that. So it was really disheartening. You know what I found it fascinating talking to journalism here for a bit is that the secret of success of the great you know, uh, newspapers in America was boiled down to one thing that someone must have thought of and was, I thought it was damn brilliant. You had conservatives owning the newspaper and they intentionally hire liberals to be reporters. <laughs> and that well, turned out to be an absolutely perfect combination. Because you have the, the state conservative politics of the paper, but great investigative muckraking reporting by these liberals, and they, they could kind of put a little collar on them, right? So it wouldn't go so far as to violate the newspaper's image, you know, or offend too many advertisers with realism. And uh, it worked perfectly. The problem came in when. Uh, liberals started owning newspapers and only hiring liberals. <laughs> and conservatives only hiring conservatives. Then you have the split. But actually, from a financial and a subscription viewpoint, conservatives owning newspapers with liberal reporters was a dynamite combination. Because it just it got every, it served everybody, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I don't know. It's just been really disheartening to me how... Uh, just crime reporting has really gone downhill. And, and you know, you, you see the podcasts are, are really popular right now, which is great. But, you know, even in listening to a lot of these podcasts, you know, I hear people using other people's information. They're not giving them credit for it. You know, and a, and a lot of these people, you know, they're amateurs in the business, so they don't use the proper language. And it's like they're just setting them up up for lawsuits and everything else. It just seems to be a whole train wreck to me. Yeah, well, uh, we, what was it, the uh, the prosecutor we had on the show who was watching Nancy Grace uh, on TV, and, and he's screaming at the television set, because Nancy's saying, and the blood in the vehicle, and he's screaming at the TV, what blood? There was no blood in the vehicle. <laughs> you know, I, I have a funny Nancy Grace story that, that I've never told uh, oh, you know, on the air or anything before. So this is a good one. But I, I was down in Orlando, Florida with Tim Miller from Texas Equifirts. You know who Tim is. Yeah. And uh, we were actually looking for uh, Kaylee Anthony at the time. And Nancy wanted Tim on the show. So we went over to some Florida studio there. And I'm I'm off to the side of the stage while Tim's doing this interview. And during the interview, I, I don't remember the exact question, but Nancy asked him something about you know the decomposition of the body in this at this point, and, and uh, had somehow referenced Tim's daughter in that. I, I don't remember exactly what was said, but but Tim took great offense to it. And he looked over at the person I was with, and he's like, hey, give me a piece of paper and a pen. 
and we weren't sure what someone was doing. He was writing something down, and you know, Nancy comes back and she's like, "Out to Tim Miller at Texas Psycho Search," and Tim held up a sign that said, "F you, Nancy Grace." Threw it down and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't see that much on TV. <laughs> no, and it didn't make it to TV. No, I'm it sure had it delay didn't. there. And, uh, <laughs> that, that was one of the funniest things I ever saw. <laughs> Well, it's, it's more challenging than ever uh, being a true crime writer, says Burl Bear, a contemporary true crime writer. Uh, what I get a kick out of is, is writing for uh, the publishers, which I enjoy doing because they pay me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a funny conversation with the executive editor at uh, Kensington Group. You know, they had a pinnacle true crime series. Michaela Hamilton, wonderful woman. Mm-hmm. And she says... Okay, uh, when the economy changed. He says, Burl, uh, the, the books you're writing are mostly about blue-collar criminals. Well, now that the economy's gone to hell, uh, blue-collar people want to read about white-collar criminals. You know, people... <laughs> you know, I don't want to identify with these people. Could you uh, please find us a case you can do where the people are rich, there's lots of drugs, lots of sex, and bonus if you could get a wood chipper in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found everything but the damn wood chipper. And that book was Fatal Beauty about Rhonda Glover killing Jimmy Jost. <laughs> and I was able to check all the boxes except the damn wood chipper. But it was yeah, close, yeah. close enough. But I'm that, guessing that that's your partner in the wood chipper there. I'll tell you, it's... Talk and shop here for a minute. That's the only book I've written where I drowned in the manuscript. Uh, I made a big mistake. <laughs> I read the reviews of my work on Amazon. <laughs> Never do that. <laughs> she warned me. She says, you can have 153 five-star, four-star reviews, and then someone who's never read the damn book will post a one-star. Usually you can tell they haven't read the book if it's one-star. If they read the book and didn't like it, they're going to give it like three Right? Mm, <laughs> or two. Yeah. Two at worst. But if it's one star, they probably never read the book. Yeah, I usually give you two, personally. But... Yeah, well, that's awful nice of you. You know, because you read halfway through and you get discussed and you give up. <laughs> yeah. <that's> about... <laughs> <laughs> I get those, too. But I let that bother me. She says, the only ones you're going to remember aren't the ones that say, gee, that's a good book. It's going to be the ones where they say it's awful. And that's going to affect your writing. It's well, your... <clears throat> they, you know... Um... You're writing for people that like what you do. Yes, she you're reminded me that. Not writing for people that hate you. Yes, she's told me, bro. Remember, you're writing for people who like your books, not those who don't. Because <laughs> the ones who don't don't buy them anyway. <laughs> have, but, you, have you um, have you thought about taking um, a story and writing an entire uh, book on it? Are you asking me? Yes. You're the guest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, people had asked me about that for years, but, you know, when when I was actively in journalism, it's like, you're so busy doing that. At the end of the day, like, the last thing I felt like doing was, was writing, writing a book. Yeah. And, and, you know, people all the time be like, hey, did you see what happened on Dateline last night? It's like, no, I didn't see. No, I don't watch true crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, because I was, I, you know, my average day was 12 hours. It's like, the last thing I'm going to do when I shut that computer off is turn on Dateline. <laughs> yeah, I, I get the exact same thing. It must be a universal Oh, it, it, it is, Pearl. It's, it's human nature. We I just um, assume that we watch true crime all the time and read true crime. and, and I'm a, I'm a, I know nothing about it. I'm a software engineer. Uh, and for my uh, my entire adult life, relatives are asking me what kind of computer I have. You know, what do I do with it? You know, and I ask, I, I ask them, uh, do you know anyone who was a surgeon? And do they have an operating theater in their house? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a good answer, Mark. Uh, yeah, it's, it's human nature for someone to think because you do something for a living that you also do it recreationally. Like sex. Oh, You're a sex yeah. worker is very difficult. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Burrow, oh, you are rather cute, but I decline your <laughs> gracious offer. You're the wrong demographic for my product. 
Well, you know, I'll have people email me and be like, hey, do you remember that story you wrote about where that girl was killed? And no, that was one with the, the, the girl. the name of that? <laughs> the one with where the girl was killed. That's a dead giveaway. Yeah, it's like, do, do you realize how many crime stories I've written? <laughs> oh, yeah. the one where the person got murdered, that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I remember that one. For remember sure. you wrote some words? Yeah. Used English. Uh, it's a, it's almost the uh, Chris Farley uh, Beatles sketch. Don't know that one. Uh, where he's going? Hey, do, 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 do you remember when you were in the Beatles? That was great. That was the question. Yes, that was Chris <laughs> Farley's hysteria. You can look it up on YouTube. It's one of the classic sketches. That's funny. Um, did you ever do any follow up? Uh, on uh, rapper McKinley uh, Phipps? Um, he's, uh, he's out now. He, he actually got uh, clemency from uh, Governor Edwards here in Louisiana. And uh, he, he was freed, oh, I don't know, probably about a month or so. It's probably been about a month or so now. Um, and uh, that, was, that was a long time coming. That, that case actually prompted my move to Louisiana. Uh, so what happened there? What happened with the case? Well, this was, uh, you know, throughout my career, I've gotten a lot of messages from people saying, you know, oh, I have, I know this person who's behind bars and they're innocent. And, you know, a lot of times you look into them and you're like, no, he's guilty. (laughs) So with this particular case, when I looked into it, uh, it just didn't feel right. And the more and more I looked into it, uh, you know, I did come to believe that this was an innocent man who was uh, behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. So I... You know, I, I flew out here to to Louisiana probably at least four or five times. Uh, I tracked down witnesses that had never been interviewed. Uh, some witnesses, they, they were candidates and that they had been threatened by law enforcement. Uh, we got uh, a videotape of a confession uh, another man made. So, I mean, we, we just had a mountain of uh, evidence supporting this guy was innocent. And so we were trying to get him a new trial, but we could not get the district attorney's office here in St. Tammany Parish, which I don't know if you know anything about St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, but they have the highest incarceration rate, uh, you know, in the country. Well, they don't want to uh, lose that distinction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, th- th- this is a place where at one time, uh, prosecutors, they would give out awards to them uh, every year for getting the most uh, convictions. They, they earned the nickname St. Slamini, is what they, mm. you know, people started calling it. Uh, so we just couldn't get them to budge, and it, it was really disheartening. Uh, you know, I spent many years working on that case, and, uh, you know, I, I think it really took a lot of energy out of me, and uh, I, was, I was very disheartened over that case. Uh, so, I, you know, I am thankful now that uh, finally the, the governor stepped forward and he, he granted this man clemency and he's free. It's, it's not the exoneration that we wanted, but, uh, you know, it's the next best thing, and at least he's not behind bars anymore. <laughs> was there any investigation uh, into the police, the prosecutor, or any of that, or they just escaped? Oh. No, we, we, we provided all the information on this about how witnesses were intimidated and everything. And, uh, you know, because uh, an attorney here named Buddy Spell, he got involved in the case pro bono, and, and Buddy's an awesome attorney. And he put all this together for them in a nice little packet, and he sends it over there. And, you know, we, you know, we didn't hear from them, didn't hear from them. So after like six months, we're like, well, what's going on here? You know, because they claimed they had assigned an investigator to it. And uh, they sent us a letter saying, you know, our investigator looked into it and didn't find any merit to it, which sounded odd. So, so I started reaching out to some of these witnesses and everything. I'm like, hey, were you contacted by, uh, you know, investigator with the prosecutor's office? Not one person was contacted. Of course not. So they, so they dismissed all this evidence without talking to a single person. They didn't even look into it. It, it was just a joke. Well, I uh, remember the fellow's name that was on the show. He was a, a, a policeman and the captain or whatever comes to him and says, hey, will you please review this case where we sent these guys to prison? There are people saying that the, they were innocent and railroaded. And, of course, we don't think they were. But will you check into it and make sure we're cool? And he checks into it, goes back and tells tells his boss, uh, we're not cool. <laughs> They're obviously innocent. And he <laughs> yeah. And they told him to sit down and shut up. 
Well, he campaigned to get these two innocent men out of prison, which he did, took quite a while, but he didn't get his pension because he violated one of the rules, and that was you don't reveal city secrets. And it was a city secret it that these innocent men railroaded to, to innocent men. Yeah. yeah. You know, there, there was an attorney, uh, his name slips in my mind at the moment, but I, I met here uh, in Louisiana a while back, and he was telling me, he, he read me a quote from a book, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, he said, you know, it, it used to be about right and wrong, the legal system, and now it's about winners and losers. Yep. You know, in the prosecutor's office, they don't want to be losers, right? even if they know they're wrong. They yeah. just won't admit it. I have and asked they, every prosecutor. Every prosecutor has been on this show from New York to the West Coast to all the little towns in between. We've had several prosecutors on. I always ask them, have you ever been under pressure? Dun, 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 to prosecute someone that you firmly believed was innocent in the first place. And they all said yes. And that's the reason that uh, Julia, prosecutor uh, in New York, quit because of that. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it. And, uh, and you know, Louisiana is it, a unique place here because uh, everything is a plea deal here. And they... they you know, you, you can have a guy who, all right, here, here's a case, for instance. There was this guy here who got busted stealing Snicker bars from a dollar store. This is no joke. Well, this is a violation of his parole, and, and it somehow led to, like, the three-strike deal or whatever. So this guy was looking at life in prison for stealing, for stealing Snickers, Snickers bars. Yeah, so the DA comes to his attorney, uh, Michael Kennedy, a friend of mine, and he's like, hey, look, he's like, we're willing to, you know, if this guy will accept, I, I want to say it was something like 10 years, he's like a 10-year plea deal, he's like, we'll, we'll drop the life imprisonment thing. So they're basically holding like a, a sledgehammer over this guy's head, you know? Yeah. It's like, are you going to risk going to trial and getting life in prison? You're going to take the 10 years. Well, well, I did a story on this, and right after the story came out, the, the DA called up uh, Michael Kennedy, and he's like, hey, let's make a better deal. And the guy, <laughs> yeah, well, let's. And, uh, yeah, the guy ended up doing, I think it was less than a year or something. But, so. you know, if the publicity hadn't been shined on that, this guy would have been railroaded over stealing some Snickers bars because he was homeless. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it's crazy. Well, that's like uh, the current uh, project that uh, Frank Gerardo and I are working on is one of, uh, similar to, uh, in some aspects of the... Uh, Geronimo Pratt story, where you have this collusion of prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges railroading somebody because it's expedient, but because there's a uh, uh, there's pressure from some aspect of the government to put an innocent man in prison. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and and when when you get charged with something here, they, they will charge you to the max. Yeah, you know, so so even if you're innocent, you're afraid not to take that plea deal. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've only been arrested once in my life. I was arrested for a D, what do you call it, DUI or DWI, which depending on what state you're in. I don't drink, first of all. Mm. <laughs> and even though that covers, people think it only covers alcohol. It even covers a uh, Contact cold capsules, anything that would uh, impair your uh, driving ability. But uh, I was doing just fine, thank you. And the cops were following us all day long. <laughs> Why are these? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, <clears throat> I got arrested for drunk driving. I passed all the tests. No alcohol, nothing. Stone cold sober. And so, uh, not only am I pleading not guilty. <laughs> this, but also I strenuously object to the date of the arraignment, which was three months after I was arrested. <laughs> People don't know that. People do not know to object to that. You're supposed to be arraigned within 72 hours. Yeah. Three yeah. months. Is this through 72 hours? <laughs> anyway, I guess three months is way past your uh, civil rights time. <laughs> That's when you go, my rights as an American citizen have been violated here. It's been a hell of a lot more than 72 hours for an arraignment. And if you don't object, that means you go along with it. So the very first thing I said, after advice from, a, from an attorney who wrote the book, DWI Defense in the State of Washington, he wrote the book. He was expensive, too. Uh, first, uh, I objected up based on that, and the judge looked at me and goes, Very good, Mr. Bear. You must have a good attorney. 
to advise you to do that. <laughs> we just let these other suckers escape right on into prison. And uh, I said, Jen, I told him who it was. He goes, he is? He's going to be your attorney? And he's going to be in my courtroom? <laughs> All impressed. Well, <laughs> my attorney shows up, goes over and talks to the prosecutor for about, I don't know, three to four minutes. Comes back and says, okay, here's the deal. You want to make a deal with you? Uh, this is also illegal what they're offering. <laughs> that was amusing. It's also illegal what they're asking you to do. Uh, is if you object to the whole thing and you fight the whole thing, they're going to do everything they can to bury you financially, even if you win. Uh, because uh, you can sue them for uh, false arrest. So what they want to do is they want to drop the DUI charges and have you come up with something else that they could arrest you for. <laughs> We'll give you a ticket for it. something lesser. I said, okay, I was going 50 to 30. Done. <laughs> that was the deal. Uh, I said, gee, Your Honor, I was lost track of the uh, speedometer. I was going 50 to 30. I'm just killed as hell. Okay, that's a fine of X amount of dollars. You can go now. He took the whole DUI thing off with the year in prison and <laughs> fine and all this other stuff they wanted to do to me. And, uh, that was my exciting adventure day in court. It only cost me ten thousand. Well, it cost ten thousand dollars to beat that, <laughs> but it was almost worth the ten grand that I didn't have to pay. <laughs> my brother did. I felt that uh, to see the look on the judge's face and the look on the prosecutor's face when that, that attorney walked into their little courtroom in his tiny town. <laughs> oh no! Look who's here! <laughs> but you, the, you know what that is. What that made me think of, uh, you know, now that I don't write crime anymore, I do watch some of the crime shows, and, and I like that uh, First 48 show, uh-huh. and, you know, it kind of, like, blows my mind how these people, you know, they get taken in an interrogation room, and the guy's like, sir, you want to talk to me? And they just start talking. Okay. I know. Where's your lawyer? <laughs> I yell at the TV set, call your attorney. <laughs> I know. It's- it blows my mind how easily these people will just sit down and talk to the police. It's like, come on, you're not going to talk them out of thinking you're, you're not guilty. <laughs> yeah. you're guilty. No, you're just digging your own grave here, pal, even if you're innocent. I do that yelling at the TV on Law, on Law and Order for the same thing. Every time they take them in to talk to them, and, was, and they make it sound like if you want an attorney, that's an admission of guilt. Yeah. And yeah. it's not. <laughs> it's not. Because you're presumed, it's supposed to be presumed innocent. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a line from my forthcoming book to save you the cost of one line in the book where Travis Webb, who's a contributor, one of my journalistic pals who offers commentary in my books, he said, we're talking about the illegal loitering laws. Most people don't know that most, most loitering laws in cities are totally unconstitutional, illegal, and they shouldn't be arresting you for loitering anymore anyway. But they still do. People don't know any better. He says, well, see, the whole thing with loitering laws it's not that you're hanging around someplace. That's not loitering. It's your intent. It's what you're thinking. Thought uh-huh. crime. <clears throat> and, and people don't realize, they think it has to do with you physically standing around looking like a dork. You know, uh, well, uh, that's, that's usually my pose. <laughs> that's usually your pose, right? No, it's, it's hanging around specifically for no good reason and having a bad reason. It's like you're going to read this person's mind and say, what he really thinking is, if I don't catch the next bus, I'll rob that jewelry store across the street. <laughs> it's just absurd. So that's why loitering law has been declared illegal and unconstitutional. So it's interesting. I mean, uh, <laughs> Stevie Wonder would always, well, you know. Yeah, he'd be arrested for loitering all the time. Yeah. And wait for Ray Charles to come pick me up. Anyway, so I had Travis Webb standing on the corner in Los Angeles holding a candy wrapper. The idea is that he'd be arrested for loitering with the intent of littering. But <laughs> he stood there for hours and they didn't pick him up. Because <laughs> you got to read your intention for a loitering law. But people don't know that either. Well, I intend to smack you upside the head later. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's thinking. So you can't accuse him of loitering at Outlaw Radio. He has a purpose in being here, which is to grill you like a swordfish. What other famous case could you touch about that you found disgusting? Was there was there any any particular thing you wrote about that you that you just looked at and went what the <laughs> what the hell? Is oh this yeah, that, that, that's easy. That's easy. That well, well, it ain't it ain't so much what I wrote about as what I saw with my own two eyes. And <laughs> that was uh, yeah, you know Jody Arias. So no, uh, not personally, thankfully. Well, well, they they sent me to Arizona to cover the trial uh, 
sitting there in the courtroom. We, we had a live blog on it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're presenting the evidence in the case uh, at one point, and uh, including the, the photos that had been found on the camera card uh, in the washing machine. Mm-hmm. And they're putting the pictures up on there, and these were deemed evidence because they all had timestamps, so, you know, it could show a timeline in the case. And so they go from, like, some innocuous photos up to all of a sudden on this giant, you know, movie screen in the courtroom, there's Jody Arias, Spread Eagle, uh, you know, uh, naked as a jaybird up there uh, on the screen. And there were multiple photos like that uh, of her naked, her vagina, everything, all there on display in the courtroom. I never seen anything Were there tickets to this trial? <laughs> well, the funniest part of it is, so CNN was airing this live. Oh, online. good! <laughs> and, and yeah, who, whoever was uh, doing the camera was asleep at the wheel because all those got they got most of them uh, out there on the video before somebody realized what was going on. They cut the feed. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have any photos of them in flagrant delecti, whatever they call it? Or was it just beauty shots of her? Oh, uh, there, there was uh, pictures of him too, and they, you know, very graphic uh, photos. I, I just never seen anything like that before, and wasn't uh, expecting it. And I, I remember a reporter, reporter next to me. She's like, "Well, I don't understand why they're not blurring those." I said, "Well, they're evidence in a criminal case. You're not allowed to alter them. They have to present them as they were found." <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, what ends up in this picture? They got that picture upside down, right side up. <laughs> but that that was one of the craziest things I'd ever seen. I, I wasn't expecting that. Well, I was telling Mike the other day, a uh, very good friend of mine has since passed away, Dick Curtis, who was program director to many radio stations I worked with up, up in the Northwest. Uh, a guy tried to blackmail him. Calls him on the phone and says, uh, you were at the Dotel Motel last night with so-and-so. I have pictures of you, you know, through the window, all the, you know, without missing a beat. Curtis says, oh, wow, man, that's fantastic. You can keep the original because you run me off some copies. My wife really gets off on that shit. (laughs) 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 The guy hung up. (laughs) Curtis never did get the pictures. Did did he get the dirt bike? Yeah, no, the kid never got the dirt bike. Yeah, he did. It's amazing how people remember stuff like that. You know, about the dirt bike? The dirt bike. Yeah, that's uh, Mom Said Kill. That's where uh, this woman hires her 14-year-old daughter and her little friends to murder her employer. She promises the kid a brand-new dirt bike. Needless to say, the kid never got the dirt bike. <laughs> kid got prison, and the guy got dead. Uh. Well, the only reason when that book came out, it was in uh, uh, what's called QFC stores, which is you know, a, a supermarket chain up in, on the West Coast. And they told me at the QFC that they had to take the book off the paperback shelves because the other daughter of the murdering woman was only seven at the time. She helped clean up the brains and the blood from the murder, the seven-year-old did. When she walked in the store and saw her mother's picture and her sister's picture on the cover of this book with the title, Mom Said Kill, she had a rather negative reaction. It brought back some unpleasant memories. So in deference to this child, who wasn't a child anymore, they removed, they punished me by taking my book out of the store, which I thought was, you think the real event would have been far more traumatizing than a book about it X number of years later. Well, people people like to try to erase the past, and uh, that doesn't quite work out. No, it doesn't, because that stuff just hides in the basement and loiters there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hmm. Hey, hey! You know, you know what you ought to do, Burl, is uh, I don't get know, a real job. Casey Anthony is uh, starting a private investigator firm, so you know she could maybe come work for you now and help you on some of these books you're doing. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Does she also offer babysitting <laughs> services. <laughs> Burl, Burl, it's time for it's time to time for your diaper change. <laughs> I'm not into that infantilism stuff. <laughs> That's a, people don't know about you know. There's a whole subculture of that of guys that like to be, wear diapers and suck on milk bottles. They pay money for people to treat them like a baby. Uh, That's my new career. <laughs> it's a lot easier than true crime. But we have that expression. You probably heard it. When you get death threats, you know you're on the right track. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, I mean, you've had death threats, I'm sure, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did any of it pertain to your writing? <laughs> or was it just because of your personality? A mix of both. <laughs> you know, well, we, we laugh about it, but I wrote an article for one of the crime blog thingies. That is something we get used to, which we can get too lackadaisical about, the death threats. But we do get them. Well, I don't think yeah. I don't think you have to worry anymore, Burrow. We're waiting for you to drop dead any minute, anyway. <laughs> no, I'll beat you too. You don't have to work, kill me. I'll drop dead before this book comes out if I'm not careful. <laughs> but I, no, we really do get death threats, as he knows, is quite true, and we do not take yeah. them so seriously, despite the fact that there have been authors, true crime writers, uh, or writers of any particular specialty, except for maybe westerns, who get killed by people yeah. who uh, or nuts, who are nuts, or more nuts. Yeah, more nuts than we are, and that's saying a lot. Yeah. I think true crime writing takes a toll on someone, emotionally and psychologically. What do you think, David? Oh yeah, I, I agree. And uh, you know, but, uh, like I said, that Max Phipps case. You know, I, I was so disheartened over that case because I just knew, I just knew we were getting this overturned. You know, we just had a mountain of evidence, and any other state, uh, it would have happened. And I, I would just. It, it really took a lot of my heart out of, uh, you know, true crime writing when that happened. Uh, that was quite a blow. Did you ever consider taking it to the Innocence Project? Uh, we, we presented the Innocence Project. Uh, there, there was a smaller one here in Louisiana, uh, Medill, they, they were called, and they, they did a, a piece on it. And, you know, it, did, it didn't matter because everything came down to the district attorney's office Right, here. if the DA is involved in the cover-up or whatever, he doesn't want that bad publicity. And it's usually quite often the judge as well. That was the thing with the uh, last man standing, Geronimo Pratt. The appeals kept going to the same judge who was in on putting him away in the first place. It wasn't until it went to a different judge who went, wait a second, what the hell is going on here? That he got out. And yeah, that yeah. happens a lot. But yeah, I don't... Uh, the, uh, go ahead. And the, the district attorney who was in office at, at the time of this case, he, he's in uh, federal prison now for... Uh, he got in trouble for mishandling money. Uh, the sheriff uh, who had arrested uh, Mac, he's in jail right now, uh, had allegedly uh, molested, uh, you know, some guys, some kids or something like that at some point. And so, like, all these key figures who you know, put him behind bars. Uh, they're, they're behind bars themselves right now. Well, that's how, uh, Karma. freeway Ricky Ross got out of prison. First, they had him in for life. Then they had him in for 25 years. But then when the entire freeway, Ricky Ross task force went to prison, <laughs> they let him out. I mean, when the cops going after you are more corrupt than you are, sometimes it works in your, your favor. Um, oh, yeah. Tell us about your uh, your Equus search work. Yeah, briefly. Then I want to get into what he's doing now to keep him going insane. Well, well uh, around I don't know, probably two thousand seven or eight, uh, I started volunteering with Equus Search and with uh, Tim Miller, and you know we we did cases all over the country there, and uh, you know some of the cases uh, I was able to write about while while they were doing them, and uh, like the Casey case, I, I was only a journalist who was actually allowed uh, behind the scenes with them and went out on all the searches with them, and, you know, we, we did many, many searches over the years. Uh, well, one of the last ones I did was uh, a gentleman in Ohio, uh, he had wrecked his vehicle and couldn't find his body, and we were walking down this creek, and, uh, you know, we were chomping away at the ice, and, you know, we, we eventually found the guy, but he had... Uh, been dazed and walked into the creek and drowned, unfortunately. Oh, wow. uh, but but I, I went out with Tim. I, I, oh, actually, the very last case we did was that Texas realtor, and that was during uh, Hurricane Harvey. And that, that was the last uh, I'd been out with Tim Miller, but you know, I've worked with him multiple times over the years, and uh, he's a really good guy. Okay, now i got to ask the important question. What's the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? <laughs> They're snouts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, snout. There's snouts. Uh, yeah. So I'm asking him. He's the he's the resident expert now. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 It's the snout. Uh, you know, the crocodile has a skinny, long snout, and the alligator's got the fat, shorter one. <laughs> Can you mate the two of them together? Well, you get a, you get a donkey. Right? Yeah, I was gonna say you get a donkey. You beat me to the punchline. <laughs> can, <laughs> can can you mate a crocodile with an alligator? 
You know, I, I don't know the answer to that one. When you get home, did I try it? <laughs> if it works, it doesn't work. Give us a call. Let us know you're all right. Because they could really piss them off. You know, <laughs> the old bait and switch. You didn't tell me she was an alligator. <laughs> I want another crocodile. That's like hunting tigers in Africa. There are no tigers in Africa. So it's a good place to go search for them. You only get tigers in India. Well, well, you know, getting to the alligator thing, you know, I talked about the Max Sips case. Well, I was coming down here so often. Uh, I actually, you know, really fell in love with Louisiana. And, uh, you know, it just kind of drew me in, and uh, it was easier to, to help Mac out being here. So so picked up and moved here in, uh, I think it was 2017 or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, when one of the... Buddy Spell, the, the attorney who worked on Max case, one day he's like, "Hey, he's like, I got this guy. He got a meet. Uh, he works with alligators. Uh, his name's Doombug. He he runs a business here called Doombug's Cage of Gifts. So I go over there, and uh, this guy taxidermies alligator heads, and uh, it, it was a really cool process and everything. So it was. I mean, how big are these heads? Oh, uh, they they're you know upwards of you know thirteen foot gator, so and. Uh, so, you know, I found it really fascinating and, and just for the fun of it, started uh, doing some myself and, and I worked with this guy and he was showing me how to do it. And, uh, you know, I left HuffPost in 2019 and, uh, you know, they gave me a severance and everything. So this, this was just kind of like a hobby, I guess you would say, uh, while I was figuring out what my next move was going to be because I, I didn't really want to go back to journalism. and. So I just kind of got more and more involved in it, uh, you know, started doing some of the, I, I did a lot of crazy stuff. I'd put like gator heads on mannequins and dress them up as butlers <laughs> and all that, make all these art pieces. And, uh, you know, did just doing it for fun. And, and then people started wanting this stuff and uh, I started selling it. Did and, people want you know, to have an alligator head on a mannequin? Yeah. We're not on a mannequin, oh, yeah. just around the house. Yeah, yeah, the, the head, uh, or they like them on a mannequin, or like we do uh, back scratchers with the feet, turn the feet in the back scratchers, you know, the alligator tooth necklaces, uh, pretty pretty much anything you see at the uh, tourist places. Huh. So, uh, and, uh, what what cut of the money do the alligators get? <laughs> they get the deepest oh. cut. <laughs> the deepest cut. Well, well, they get immortalized. They get immortalized. That's right. So are, are alligators raised specifically to be purses and stuff? Well, well, how it works here in Louisiana, and you know, you know, you get people who get upset about the killing of these gators, but what they have to understand is we have five million people approximately in the state of Louisiana. We have approximately three million alligators. If you don't have these population control hunts, these, these gators are the apex predators in the swamp. They're gonna kill everything in the swamp. They ain't gonna be nothing left but alligators. And then they're going to start attacking more and more people. So, right. you know, it's, an, it's a necessary thing to do these population controls. And one of the uh, problems they have with the alligators is, you know, a lot of times uh, a nest full of eggs won't even hatch, oh. you know, for various reasons. Other little predators will get to them and everything. So, so you have these alligator farms here. And what they'll, they do is they go out and they collect the eggs. And in exchange for getting to keep so many eggs, they raise so many to release back into the wild to keep a, a healthy population. And so it's, you know, they have a, the alligator, alligators here are basically a renewable resource like cows and pigs are everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it comes down to. Uh, but, you know, unlike cows and pigs, it's even more necessary here because, like I said, they're the apex predator. Yeah, the cows and stuff aren't going to come pigs. attack you and eat you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I've uh, had a few. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, well, I, you, I've had a brush know, with a cow patty field. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, during uh, Hurricane Ida here, uh, about 15, 20 minutes away from where I live, there, there's a uh, place called Slidell. And there was a gentleman who had gone out into the floodwater, and the gator grabbed his arm and it ripped it off. Oh. And got up on his wife helped him get up on his porch and she went in the house called 911 and she comes back out and he was gone. And uh, they just, about a, a week or so ago, uh, they ended up finding the gator that had uh, attacked and killed the man. How could they tell? Was it wearing his watch? 
No, uh, they, they cut the gator open oh. and, and found uh, particles of bone and stuff because they have a really slow digestive system. It oh. takes them a long time to, to break down things. Oh. Unlike, unlike oh. sharks, which... Uh... Sharks have a fast digestive system? Uh, yeah. Well, maybe the best way of population control would be to release some sharks, you know, uh, the kind that eat meat. Uh, no. Into the alligator swamp. No, no. And then that that would take care of it. Unfortunately, the, no. <laughs> the only The only uh, shark of any consequence that can live in fresh water would be a bull shark. And, and they're yeah, vegetarians you know, or not? A 12-foot bull shark would be quite large. And, yeah. uh, you know, alligators really don't have, other than their uh, their feet, don't really have anything that's vulnerable. Anything what? Vulnerable, something oh. for the shark to attack because the their skin is so tough. And in yeah. general, the alligator is going to win those fights. Well, that's that's depressing news for the shark community. Well, if you talk about the salties in Australia, yeah, um, they are uh, commonly seen attacking the uh, uh, the sharks in the area. I like it. Um, you know the the you know the white tips, the reef sharks, the uh, bulls that are in that are indigenous to the area. Um, the only thing that they probably wouldn't get is a, a full-grown great white, which is approximately the same size. Huh. The great white has a worse temper and sharper teeth. It eats meat. Uh, no, they don't have a temper. The alligators do. <laughs> the alligators have a temper. Yeah. The alligators have two brains and the shark only has one? I don't know that. Well, because human beings have a three-part brain and we're the only ones that do, I think, except maybe... maybe Maybe dolphins and chimpanzees. <laughs> or gorillas are the closer. Uh, hey, yeah. you, you know, and if, uh, if anybody wants to see any of that crazy art stuff, I do uh, I do have a Facebook page for it. It's uh, Gators Galore on Facebook. But it, but Wasn't that James like Bond's my, girlfriend? I, that was I, I uh, Pussy like Galore. Last name where it's G-A-L-O-H-R. Yeah. You know, get it? Gators yeah. Galore. <laughs> well, Gators Galore. Gators Galore. Uh, those yep. those glammed up gators get me every time. <laughs> Can't resist a glammed up gator. <laughs> well, well, you might like the Marilyn Monroe one I just did. Oh, really? On there, you'll have to check it out. Oh, yeah, the Marilyn Monroe gator <laughs> sounds like a Happy Meal. <laughs> Maybe a Happy Meal for the alligator. Is this a Texas based or Louisiana? Louisiana, Louisiana. Yeah, I'm, I'm right outside of New Orleans. Uh, we just got hit by Ida here. I actually just had a, a tree taken off my roof uh, about a week or so ago. A tree came through the back part of the house here. Well, these days some part in the triumvirate of uh, Corey and Gary C. King and yourself. You are still here. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really sad uh, about Gary's passing. He, he was a really good guy, and, and Corey, too. Yeah. Taken well, it's tragic because uh, Corey uh, had us come to the uh, House Core Horror and Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And uh, he was there uh, helping uh, pack up. And that's when he passed away. He had a heart attack. That's a shame. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for joining us, sir. We got to go. Thank you, David Lore. Always a Hi, pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, Pearl. Magic Besides Matt. James Bond, what's next? Magic Man Ellen, the Demons of Decadence. Live from the Light of Lounge.